Hi, and welcome to The Horn, a podcast from the International Crisis Group. I'm Alan Boswell. Today's episode is once again in partnership with the Friedrich Ebert Foundation, or FES, and I'm really pleased to have Edmund Yakani joining us today. Edmund is a towering figure within South Sudan's civil society and an astute reader of the country's politics. He is the executive director of SEPO, the Community Empowerment for Progress organization. He's on the show today to speak about South Sudan's long and scary road ahead to elections currently scheduled for the end of next year. Edmund, welcome on our podcast. Yeah, thank you, Alan. So we have a lot to discuss today about South Sudan and its new roadmap to elections. Um, But I wanted to start out first by addressing this recent political crisis. President Salva Kiir, he he fired Angelina Taney, the defense minister, uh, wife of the first vice president and longtime rival of Kiir's, uh, Riyak Machar, the the former rebel leader. This is obviously a serious provocation. um, but, But how serious do you see this dispute and what is the way forward? It was a serious violation of the provision of the Revitalized Peace Agreement in terms of the spirit of the agreement. The spirit of the agreement is defined by the process of any party can't make a unilateral decision with regard to implementation of the agreement, and that means the only way they have to do is that any party who have an idea or a proposal, they have to go for consultations. After consultations, they have to reach consensus. But the decree of the president, the primary objective is actually not relieving the Minister of Defense, who is Angelina, the wife of Dr. Yak Mashar. The primary aim of the decree of the president was to swap the Minister of Defense from being controlled by Dr. Yak Mashar through his party, SPLM-IO, to be controlled by the party of the president, which is SPLM. And the Minister of Defense, Angelina, she's a very good, strong female leader that have influence. But because she being in the ministry, she tried to fight corruption and she have devolved a lot of... Um, uh, rifts and grievances with some of the generals who are used to culture of corruption, manipulation of military budgets. So that's her problem. And most of those generals are allies of the president, Salva. So they have to make a lot of noise that, look here, we can't work with Angelina. And second thing is that the government or the incumbent or the SPLM under President Salva is battling with the issue of the arms embargo imposed on South Sudan by UN. So they're trying to look at how can they play around the arms embargo. And the Minister of Defense have a big role in undermining the UN sanction or the UN arms embargo. And that has made the president to look into like, oh, it's better let us control the Minister of Defense so that we can undermine the arms embargo in terms of smuggling arms. But of course, though there's an arms embargo from UN, as long as there's no proper tracking and monitoring system, the government can play smuggling tactics using other opportunities or using the names of other countries for the army embargo. And of course, we are aware that some countries like Russia, who is in crisis with Ukraine, they're looking for market of the arms in order to sustain the economical pressure. And that comes immediately after when our president, Salva Kiir did met with the Russian ambassador to South Sudan and the Russian ambassador offers him an invitation to meet Putin this year. And there's rumors which came out of... Uh, the meeting that actually the Russian says, look here, you better take the Ministry of Defense so that we know how to do some deals, to do some deals that undermines the army embargo and we can supply. So whether that is true or not true, but of course we're aware that Russia is in need of money. So that's other external factors that are beyond. But coming back home, coming back to South Sudan in terms of violation, it's a serious violation and it may undermine the unification of the forces. So undermining unification of the forces is likelihood that it will trigger the country to return back to violence. So that is how serious it is. And we are aware that uh, in terms of you are part of a question, what's the way forward? We are aware that the region is disturbed in terms of IGAD because this particular peace agreement was led by IGAD or trade by IGAD. So Ethiopian prime minister 
Abi have to come to Juba and Sudan as a grantor to the peace agreement and at the same time as a sitting chair of Egar have to send military leaders of Sudan. So they're negotiating, but there's chances that likelihood of uh, SPLM may retain the Minister of Defense is very minimum. It's very minimum, as I've said, because it has link with some aspiration that the president have things to do with supply of arms. And elections are coming also. Minister of Defense is the biggest ministry in terms of numbers for manipulating electoral results. Because, you know, people in uniform always, they need command. As you command them, this is the only way you have to go to through military command. You can easily rig elections. So that's another calculation that because the agreement end game is by December 2024, the country have to go for, uh, for a national general elections. And that's why the seat of Salva will be contested by so many players, Dr. Riak and the rest. Mm. The, this was obviously a difficult pill for Riyak Machar to swallow. What do you think are his options now? You know, many people point out that he's continued to, to, to weaken since signing the peace deal. Does he really have the leverage to force Kira to make major concessions at this point? Obviously, yeah. This issue of the Minister of Defense offers him a big opportunity. He's been weakened and there's a lot of military defection from his forces to the Salva's forces. So, but this is an opportunity for him because that precedent later decision on swapping the means for defense and interior offers him an opportunity to reach negotiation and to force the government to do compromise. So we feel like Riyak may give in the seat of the minister, but he may negotiate to find a bit reasonable share around the control of the command system of the army. And that's why we have seen now there's a unification of the second level or second layer command structure. And I think there he will gain a lot of uh, equal influence in terms of the command system. But obviously, that offers like an opportunity that he may give in Minister of Defense, but he may use that particular excess of giving in Minister of Defense to Salva to negotiate for some deals. And I'm quite sure they have been silent. There's a lot of negotiations going on by what we're hearing from the corridors of power that there's so much deliberations going on through Sudan mediation because Sudan is mediating the two the two parties, that's President Salva and Dr. Riyak Mashar. But of course, really, Riyak is weak in terms of military influence and military pressure to negotiate too much or to pull Salva to a corner. He's really weak. So, And Salva may take advantage of that in pushing him to give in. Of course, Minister of Defense, yes, is a Minister of Defense, but if Riyak can gain control of the command system, somehow he may have influence in some of the decisions for the Minister of Defense rather than having a minister who may be hanging without uh, control of the command system. So I think that's what Riyak is going to take advantage of. Mm. Now, to do something as provocative as to fire uh, Riyak Machar's wife as Ministry of Defense, it, it sort of raises a, a question of a of a more nightmare scenario of, of President Kiir firing Riyak Machar as vice president, which is what happened in the last attempted run-up to elections in, in 2013, um, and is one of the events that sort of snowballed into the the really terrible civil war that, that South Sudan fell into. Do you have any concerns that this unity government can hold together through elections? You know, based on the provisions of the revitalized agreement, the resolution of conflict in the Republic of South Sudan in Chapter 1, I can't specifically know, I think the article is maybe 1.1.2 of the agreement, it have customized the seat of the president and the seat of the vice president to be personally named. And I think the seat of the president is named after Salva Kiir, and then the seat of the first vice president is named after Riyak Mashar, and it's been reinforced by some articles of, of, of the same chapter one, where if President Salva have to leave to certain uh, reasons, then Riyak have to 
to to to act on salva seed somehow that controls salva in firing riak but i think what he will what riak will take advantage is that if salva continue with these behaviors there's a likelihood that actually splmio under riak may split up one wing may decide to go for war against salva and this may be outside juba this may be in things like their controlled states and their control counters so there's a likelihood of more played within the Mayo based on this idea of president uh, firing uh, minister of defense and swapping the ministries if they didn't negotiate. But I think IO in terms of uh, REAC and the close allies to REAC, they are weak. I don't think that option of waging a war is something that they can prefer to go to, but they will prefer to continue negotiating and use diplomacy rather than really a military solution to the the behaviors of Salva, but also Salva is a, is, a, is a bit afraid that if he loses React, then the legitimacy of the agreement is often remember on the other waiting room, there's a wrong peace process, which is waiting actually for the revitalized peace agreement to collapse or the government of national unity to collapse, and then the wrong peace process become a legitimate process. So, and that also offers a bit of fear towards Salva. He may not know, he doesn't want to continue committing such atrocities that made him to lose the government of national unity and then give Rome's. Uh, peace process legitimacy to be seen as an alternative way about how to handle the country political transition from violence to peace. Mm. And and just for listeners, the, the Rome process is the peace talks being facilitated by the Sant'Egidio community between uh, South Sunnis who didn't sign the 2018 peace deal, um, as well as the government. So I want to bring us forward talking about the extension um, of the peace deal, which you've mentioned. Just to recap, uh, South Sudan fell into civil war in 2013, then signed a peace deal a more final peace deal in 2018. Um, there were many, many delays in terms of implementing that peace deal. Uh, the, the peace deal was supposed to conclude, and then last summer the parties agreed to uh, extend the peace deal by two more years. Obviously, to many, I think this just looked like these leaders failing to implement a peace deal and then colluding more or less to give themselves at least two more years in power. Is that how you think we should see this extension, Edmund? Yes, we should see that ex- this extension from a point of um, Salva believe that he doesn't want to lose power. And for him to lose power, he have to find all possible political formulas to retain power. And one of the things to retain power is always whenever they sign a peace agreement, it's undermined the peace agreement, violates it, and go again back to square one and start new process, and those process lead to extension. The extension was not accepted with the international communities. It's only the, the IGAD and the African Union that have buy-in the extension, but most of the international community reject the extension. And already there's a sort of like a voice outside there from the national citizens and from the international community and from the region this time also, including EGAD and AU, no more extension, even including himself, Salva, no more extension. So Salva is at fixed in terms of how to manage to meet a deadline of holding general national elections by December 2024. My my main worry is that we may have a policing elections. We may not have a democratic elections that meets the criteria of free and fair elections. We may have a policing elections where it's dictated upon. And I think that's why the interest of controlling the Ministry of Defense becoming very important for the president because if you want to conduct policing elections, then you need to be in charge of the military. So if anybody wants to rebel, then the military will automatically declare war and he can sort of like decide enormously to sustain presidency in the name of a war is declared or what happened in 2013, a coup is declared. So we have a long pathway to transition from violence to peace as long as the behaviors and the attitude of the president politically is not changed to be proactive towards a democratic transitional process. Mm. So 
no one I talk to really thinks that South Sudan is going to be ready for elections at the end of next year, despite, as you said, these near universal calls that there not be another extension on power. What do you see as the uh, main critical steps that must be done between now and, and then to make an election really viable in South Sudan? There are two main actions have to be done. One is legislative, one is uh, institutional. Legislative, they need to enact the electoral law at least without a delay before June. So the national parliament have to ratify the amended elections, amended by one of the bodies entrusted by the peace agreement to work on legislation and policy amendment called the National Constitutional Amendment Committee, which have already amended the electoral law and have submitted to the Minister of Justice. So Minister of Justice have to speed it up to, to be approved by Council of Ministers. From Council of Ministers have to be sent to the Parliament to ratify. That's one thing that they need to really work on it as a, as, as a national electoral law. The next thing is they need to accelerate the constitutional making process. And the constitutional making process have to accelerate by reconstituting the Constitutional Review Commission and forming the Constitutional Drafting Committee. As I've said before, constitution is prerequisite for the of elections. Then the other exercise they have to do is if they pass the electoral law, they need to reconstitute the National Election Commission because as we speak with you per now, the National Electoral Commission is not in existence in all terms, in terms of human resource, infrastructure, and then equipments as, as the Electoral Commission to prepare for election by December 2024. They are not ready. It's nowhere to be seen. Why is the Electoral Commission? Nobody knows it and there's no commissioners. There's only one previous commissioner who is moving around as a chair of the commission. But commissioners, technocrats, equipments, um, set up of their infrastructure across the country, it is zero. So they need to work on the Electoral Commission in terms of its establishment. Then the other institution is a political parties council because if you want to go for the elections per the provision of the agreement, then the political parties have to gain political legitimacy in terms of getting registered by National Political Parties Council. And now the National Political Parties Council are not registered. So reconstituting the Electoral Commission, reconstituting National Constitutional Review Commission, reconstituting the Political Parties Council and acting the, 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 the electoral law, this are the essentials and this must be attached with a unified forces that means the first graduated unified forces need to be redeployed so that they can provide safety and security during the electoral process because there's institutions that play a big role in the electoral process you have the police you have the judiciary they need to be prepared in order to handle electoral disputes and electoral violence and creating a conditional environment for elections so i think that's for me is really essential for for for, for the parties uh, for the government and if you ask me in terms of timeline this needs to happen before June of this year. If they pass June of this year, it's going to be tough because after June, rain season is going to run. So this is how tight the timeline is for the government to conduct elections. So, so there's not a uh, there, there's not an electoral body. Uh, they still don't have an agreed upon uh, new constitution. There's no unified army. And there's still not legal political parties. <laughs> so so there's, a, there, there's a lot to be done. What what about a census, um, and what about figuring out the boundaries of constituencies within the country, which I, which will also be hugely contentious for especially local politics? Yeah, obviously, there's a question, should we go for elections without census or election census? There's a, some experts are disputing that, no, look here, you can go to elections without census. There's some dispute that some experts saying 
there's a possibility you can go for election. That sense you can use the previous geographical constituencies, but of course, as I said, it's going to be a disputed uh, approach of elections without census because we are used in a tradition that elections always have to be attached to the census. So that's another big challenge. So another debate is around the census, how to go. And that's why some experts were saying, and, 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 and in our one of our meetings in Nairobi, is around like the government need to be advised to sequencing elections. So they, they need to for them to sequence elections of local government level, state level, national level. As you speak, we don't have electoral commission in existence and they're going to have multiple votes at a, at a different three level layers. And if you have an electoral dispute, I don't think the commission will have a, a, a capacity to manage electoral dispute at the same time at a different levels of the electoral positions, which is local government, state government, and the national government. So there's a need to sequence the elections in terms of maybe we can test the environment by holding holding local government elections to check the capacity of the commission and how can the commission manage. And then maybe next is a state's level, then we can go for the national as a final. Mm. This proposal to start with local elections and, and move up towards national elections is is a very interesting one. It's one we've bantered about with, with policymakers as well for a number of reasons. But do you think that is something the authorities, President Kier in particular, would 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 consider? Obviously, it's a level of advocacy and lobby around Salva Kier, how much has been done. I don't think there's a lot of lobby work that's been done. There's a bit of... Um, acceptance from some government officials that yes we need to test the waters by how by holding local government elections first so that it give us a prediction of how we're going to face the state and the national government and of course the biggest challenge now we're going to be contested is seats of the state governors which is our sub-national government level and then the seats of the national MPs and the seats of the president those are really very contested seats that need proper planning and and and, and the electoral commission have to prepare for Iran because out of our 10 states which is define our sub-national government level we're thinking likely four to five states may be contested simply because of their political identity. Places like Central Equatoria being the state host the capital, places like Unity State being a state where it have huge oil revenue, places like Melekal where its capital city is being contested by different ethnic groups. So these are states that a place like Eastern Equatoria because it's one of our gold, gold mining hub. So some of these states we feel like it's going to be contested in terms of Iran and whether the Electoral Commission will have the capacity to rerun elections, those states or not. So I think one of the reasons that this idea has gathered interest for those who don't know is that there's a, a huge crisis of legitimacy at the local level, especially back in South Sudan's last elections in 2010. You did have local officials from governors to state legislatures who were elected, albeit through an election process that was troubled with its fair share of of rigging accusations. But then since the Civil War, pretty much all these officials have been more or less appointed by the president. And there's very little accountability and a lot of poor governance across the system um, at the grassroots level. One of the reasons that we haven't talked about as much already that people are very concerned about the run-up to elections, besides possible violence that could occur during or after the elections, is that South Sudan is already seeing massive waves of violence right now. Why are we seeing all this violence already across the country um, in, in, in what looks like almost mini civil wars in several spots? It is a political motivated violence at sub-national level and to have link to do with access to power where politicians use violence at sub-national level as a pathway of accessing power either at the central level or at sub-national level. That's one thing. And secondly, also, it's a livelihood driven among the youth who are trying to get the gun as a mode of livelihood because they can raid with the gun. They can raid cattle. Some of those cattle, they can sell them out. They can use some of those cattle for social gain, things like marriages or or social prestige so that they can get some status in the 
society. So those violence are really politically motivated at the subnational level. And this tells you the magnitude of challenge that the government will face if the government is to go to election because some of those pockets of violence, it may turn. As I'm, I'm working with an early warning system that we feed to IGAD, I feed to AU, um, and I'm managing the South Sudan early warning system. In the South Sudan early warning system, we have over 11 hotspots of a consistent violence that is deadly, that we lose at least in a month between 10 to 15 lives of innocent civilians. So those 11 pockets or those 11 hotspots of uh, subnational violence may turn to political in the election. That means election may not be held around those hotspots and means there's a high chances that elections may be interrupted by the subnational violence. So... For me, it's really a big issue for the government to even, even, even not only at the, at the, at the point of rerun or second run of ele of a, of electoral process, but even right from the first run of the electoral process, right from campaign stage, some of the campaigns may break into violence, and some people may deny certain politicians not to campaign the area. So for me, that's how risky the elections are if we don't properly calculate well and if we don't create a conducive environment for elections. So the conducive environment for elections is inclusive of mitigating and preventing those subnational violence that are deadly. So besides, of course, the violence that we saw around the elections in 2010, largely over state-level governor races, um, the civil war in 2013 also happened in a run-up to elections as well. So obviously, you know, a lot of concerns about the risk of violence here. We've seen some interesting surveys in which South Sunnis say they expect elections to lead to more violence, yet it also shows that they still want elections anyways. Uh, why? Yeah, people are trying to see a um, shift of leadership from the current leaders to a new leadership. And the only instrument that you can shift the leadership from the current leadership to a new leadership is through elections. That's why the elites were much more looking into elections and they want to get elections done. While the massive population of the rural areas are afraid that if elections is to be carried out, the country may run to violence. And mainly these are the communities that are feeling violence because they can see violence is still is happening within their communities. So if you go and ask them, they say, look here, yes, election is good, but we are, we are not sure that this election should be peaceful because violence is still going on. And we have seen politicians using violence within our communities. Now, if I to give them elections, they may use violence as an instrument of uh, pursuing the electoral position. So many were saying, let's go for, uh, let's go for elections. If it happened violence, then we, need, we find a new pathway. But delaying elections is a disaster by allowing the status quo to continue and continue looting and continue torturing and violating human rights violations. So the people who prefer, we better go for violence and elections. Or actually, their voice was saying, give violence chance. Because we're tired of uh, political negotiations. We can't reach anything. Let us use violence to find a pathway of our transition, which is immorally, it's not something acceptable. But I, it's for the first time in my life to hear somebody saying, give violence chance which many people say, no, we can't give a violent chance, but there's some mindset in South Sudan that give violent chance to sort out things because we are at stuck point that the incumbent is in discipline, doesn't also political maturity, and they're imposing on us pressure, but we don't have a way. The only way we can try is if we try elections, elections fail, then we flush them out using force, which is always a challenge, and it's a costly, and it's a very expensive one. Yeah, I guess it's understandable that so much of the country is already experiencing so much violence that... South Sunnis, or at least many of them, are just hoping for anything that could change the status quo, even if, as you mentioned, there are a lot of doubts about whether elections will be able to achieve that. The surveys also find that South Sunnis are almost directly split on whether or not they prefer what we'd call a winner-take-all election, one winner, especially, I imagine, uh, at the presidency, or if they prefer another power-sharing government, which South Sunnis have, of course, been subjected to for 
for quite a number of years. Um, and, and I find this fascinating that it's split right down the middle. Um, how do you see this question as South Sudan heads for another election? Should people be looking to create a system that ensures losers are accommodated? Or, you know, does the era of power sharing need to come to a close? Obviously, in terms of electoral process, if to use the winner takes all is another violence, to be honest with you, if you don't compromise. So uh, bringing the era of power sharing is not an easy thing because with the ethnic classes that we have in the country, somehow power sharing manage ethnic divisions and ethnic differences. So if you're to say, let's go for elections that the winner takes all, one part of the country or some part of the country may break into a violence that consistently. And we have seen in 2010 elections, when we had elections where the winner takes all, the country have broken into violence. You have David Yao Yao in Greater Pibor, you have George Ator in Jongole, and by then you have uh, 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 Peter Sole in Central Equatoria. So it's, it's a bit challenge, but obviously we want to see electoral process that allow citizens to control the power of political leadership rather than the individuals controlling power of political leadership. So that's the hardships that we are in now. So the concept of uh, winner takes all, I don't think is going to work because we are governed by ethnic coalitions. So if you undermine ethnic coalition electoral process, the country may break into violence. Mm. Is the way to create a non-winner-take-all uh, election? Is that through the Constitution or would that be through sort of informal deal-making? I think it should, should be through the Constitution so that also you don't have a chance of political violations. This concept of Africans that we have learned in the continent, that what we call gentleman agreement, gentleman agreement can't work. You need to have a really illegal agreement. So Constitution play a big role in govern such things. You have, we have seen our closest neighbor, Kenya, where the societies were more of elites, well-informed, well-educated. Still, you can see violence going over issue of elections. Raila Odinga couldn't agree, and, and you see Kenya has been destabilized. Now, if you, con- if you were to equate that particular context to our situation where there's a high rate of illiteracy, ethnicity play a big role than political ideology, it's going to be tough. So I think we need to find a formula in the Constitution how coalition governments can be established through electoral process. Mm. And what would a credible constitution process looking like that could that could produce such a, a form of, you know, really progressive constitution for South Sudan? Is that possible in the next year? That's not possible in the next year. We need to start doing constitution South Sudan two levels. One level is that, yes, we need to have a citizen-driven constitution, which is a good constitution that will bring those values if it is citizens-driven. But the context where in our citizen-driven is going to be very challenging. But by now, we can do what you call a constituencies of elites that can represent those ethnic groups negatively negotiating constitutional process. But obviously, we are advocating for citizen-driven constitution as the best way for. But I'm worried that citizen-driven constitution may not happen. We may have elites negotiated constitution where the elites can claim they represent some of those citizens' constituencies. Mm. And looking back at South Sudan's history, given the risk of violence, what do you think are the main things that could be done, um, including by external actors, as uh, there is a run-up to elections moving ahead? What, what are the best strategies to try to reduce and, and mitigate uh, potential violence. One is if we can use the constitution-making process as a political instrument for reconciling the political classes or political ideology classes as Sudan will be much more better if the internationals can take up a strong standpoint on using the constitution-making process because, you know, it's a process which is prerequisite to the election. So if we can use the constitution to gain political reconciliation amongst us, Sudanese will be good. So I will urge for international support the constitution-making process and 
transcend. It's the only process that brings citizens to the center of political shaping of the pathway from violence to peace in South Sudan. For me, that's why international to go for it. And of course, one thing that elections have to be used as a sanctioned process in terms that we can't avoid elections, but elections have to meet what you call election, electoral global standards so that at least you can also have consensus around the outcome of the election. So I think those are some of the things that regional and international community can play to help South Sudanese to pursue. I know UN have already shown an interest that they will support the electoral process, but you need to offer technical support in advance to South Sudanese electoral um, management process in terms of institution, human resource, capacity building. Of course, UN might have, through the UN peacekeeping mission here, choppers that they can fly around electoral materials. But civic education is very important. I know UN have a radio, you can use that radio. But there's a need to really not undermine the constitutional making process. So for me, international should stand behind the constitutional making process, which is a prerequisite for elections. Mm. And there's a lot of, I'd say, hope and efforts uh, by international and regional actors to see if they could manage to get Kier and, and RIOC to consider uh, stepping aside at the end of this period rather than running again in elections. You know, do you think that's something that's plausible, that's something diplomats should be working on? I don't think it's possible. I don't think it's possible because you don't see React as a React, you don't see Salva as a Salva. You see them as ethnic representation. You see them as a constituency of their ethnic identity, where they come from. So it's not going to be possible. So uh, the only thing you need to do is you need to do a negotiating, what you call, you need to negotiate an exit. And the exit have to be a holistic exit, a comprehensive exit for both of them at the same time with offers that give them a bit of a reward back. Maybe you can use the, 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 the system of exit strategy for MOI. Uh, in Kenya, Daniel Arabmoy in Kenya, or use the one used for Kurunziza in Burundi or for Joseph Kabila in DRC. So you need to really have a negotiated exit that internationals can do, but they have to exit at the same time simultaneously. If one goes, leave the other one, still the other one will not go. So for me, that's the, how the hardships is. But it's not easy to say you can have a political process minus the two minus half and minus react. That's not going to be possible because they represent an ethnic identity, they are not themselves. Mm. Do you think President Kier in particular would listen to would listen to people urging him to to retire? He have pronounced several times that he is ready to retire, but people are keeping him in power. I don't know what does that mean. But I think if um, we have consensus from regional and international level for him to retire in a negotiating manner, I think that's possible. But of course, he may have his precondition, and if we're able to, to fulfill his preconditions for a time, and that that's possible, and and it's not something unique. We have seen with Joseph Kabila in DRC. We have seen with Kurunziza. Nobody believes Kurunziza can give in. And we have seen Banden with Moy. But I think with Kurunziza is a case study that you can, you can see if it's a properly negotiated. Mm. And how long is the window to convince him um, of that? Because, of course, once he starts properly running for re-election as president, that becomes a much more difficult proposition. Six months from now. That's the window of the time. Okay, that's very specific. <laughs> um, and, and, and finally, Edmund, thanks for, for all your time. I know you have to run. There's been lots of speculation about your future as well. Are you going to run for office someday? I'm not interested to run for an office someday because the political context we're in is not really so much uh, encouraging. We don't have political identity. I will really invest much of my time on civic education rather than going to political office that you can't manage. People who are not informed is going to be problematic. Okay, th thanks, Edmund, very much for your time. Thank you. Thanks for listening. This episode was made in partnership with the Friedrich Ebert Foundation, or FES. The Horn is a production of the International Crisis Group. I'm Alan Boswell. Our producers are Mae Francis and Ida Holly Nambi. <laughs>